The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, we're continuing in our series. We're in week number six in our verse-by-verse journey through the book of Revelation. Let me do a quick review because we had communion last week, so we didn't have this class, so I want to remind you of uh, where we're at. Now, we're... We're emphasizing the genre of the document. Remember we said when you're studying the book of Revelation, you need to understand the genre. Why does genre matter? Because genre means it's the type of, of document. And you look at a poem differently than you look at a court affidavit. You know, a poem is uh, poetic, which sounds redundant, but it's more creative. A court affidavit is, is facts, just the facts, you know. And so it's important that you understand the genre of a document that you're reading because you will read it and ex- have different expectations of it. Well, we learned the book of Revelation is three things. It's first of all, we said it's an apocalyptic, apocalyptic document. What's that? That is a special form of writing, very popular about 200 BC to 100 AD. And apocalyptic writers uh, used uh, visual images and half humans, half even machines. We said Ezekiel and Daniel had some aspects of the uh, apocalyptic documents where they used all these images and highly symbolic. Remember, I, I created my own apocalyptic document with the American um, election. I said, if someone was to write about the American election uh, in an apocalyptic form, they would put it this way. I saw a man whose hair was flaming waves like the ocean riding an elephant and that man came up to a woman who was riding a donkey and she was encased in a glass case and the man on the elephant stomped the woman on the donkey but the glass case did not shatter now that is the american election summed up in an apocalyptic document and that's sort of what revelation it's very creative highly descriptive okay the numbers, the colors, everything's symbolic. And we said, when you're reading numbers in Revelation, they're either statistics or they're symbols. And you can't intermingle the two. You've you got to kind of choose. And I would put to you that uh, by, the most, by, by far, they are symbols. And we'll get to that when we get into more of the uh, symbolic aspect in the numbers coming up in the next few chapters. Um, we said the main characters in this apocalyptic document were John, the church, and Jesus. We said not only is it an apocalyptic document, but it's also a prophetic document. It's a prophecy. Uh, scripture itself calls it, Revelation calls itself a prophecy. John said, you know, this prophecy. And so it's a prophetic document. It's God speaking into the circumstances of his people for their exhortation, comfort, edification, and even for prediction. But it's a third. It's also a letter. And this is what makes it so unique, the genre of this document. It's, it's not just one genre, it's, it's three combined. And so it's a letter, meaning was written by a specific person at a specific time to specific individuals in a specific place for specific reasons. So it wasn't this general thing written for us to figure out Russia and Iran and Iraq 2,000 years later. No, it was written in 96 AD roughly to speak to certain people, to certain churches at a certain time for a certain reason. So we learned it was written by the Apostle John, written from a prison camp. We said Patmos, which was an island off modern-day Turkey. Think of it as a first-century Alcatraz. And uh, he was there on the island. Why was he on this prison island? Because he refused to, to follow with the Caesar worship and the emperor worship that was going on around them. 
And so he was exiled to this island. Many others were killed. Thousands were, uh, were, were killed and martyred. Why was John not martyred? We're not quite sure, but maybe they figured, well, that really didn't work with the, with the, with the founder of this religion, with Jesus, so we don't want to make a so-called martyr out of him, so let's just punish him instead of killing him. We don't know why he wasn't martyred, but he wasn't. He was exiled on this island. And it was written to seven specific churches in the region, and, and we, when we graphed them on the... Uh, that's remember this is clearly West Asia, and uh, we, we learned Patmos is here, and we said the the churches were like a horseshoe. Can someone? No, there's no sound man here. I'm getting a ring on my voice here. Okay, so it's these seven churches, and and now what we're doing is we're looking through these seven churches and what uh, Jesus is saying to each of these churches. Now, as your outline says. Um, there's a repeating pattern when you look at these uh, seven churches and what Jesus is saying to them. There's a repeating pattern that it's generally following. Uh, there's a description of the character of Christ. And then there's a description of what Christ knows about the church. And he, he first commends them and then he usually rebukes them for sins of commission or omission. And then thirdly in the pattern, there's a call uh, to repentance with a warning of the consequences if they don't repent. And then Jesus moves into a description of reward, promise for faithfulness and overcoming. And that is a huge theme in the book of Revelation. Faithfulness in the midst of trials and overcoming. And again, that's a huge theme because John, Jesus via John, is warning these churches, warning these individuals, it's bad right now, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But as we've learned, a theme in Revelation is it, things are not merely as they appear. Remember, apocalypsis, apocalyptic, it, it's from the Greek word, which means an unveiling, a pulling back of the veil, an uncovering. And I, I likened it to in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy walks up and, and she sees this giant head, and it's the wizard, oh, it's scary. And then Toto goes and pulls the curtain, and we say, oh, no, what's actually this is? It's an elderly man pushing buttons and pulling levers. Oh, that's what's really happening behind the scenes. That's an apocalypsis. That's a revelation. That's what this book is. It's a pulling back of the veil, and here's what's really happening. You're seeing Rome like a juggernaut, and you're seeing all this persecution and pain, and it looks like the enemy's winning. Jesus is saying, oh, no, no. Here's what's really happening. Let me show you what's happening behind the scenes, up in the throne of God. And let, let me give you a sense of what to expect and what's happening right now. Okay, so, so far... We've looked at Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus, and we learned that essentially Jesus was saying, you're doing things right, but your heart is not right. And then for the church in Smyrna, we learned that their deeds and their hearts were actually right, but they had some severe trials on the horizon, including dying for their faith, but God was going to reward them in the end. And then last time we were together, through Pergamum, we learned that they were doing well in response to some great external pressures, but they were succumbing to some internal pressures, some temptations to compromise with the secular and pagan forces. Which leads us now to uh, the church in Thyatira. So we're in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Let me just read 2, 18 to 29. Interestingly enough, as your outline says, when it comes to the historical context of Thyatira, Thyatira is probably the least significant of the seven cities, of the seven churches, yet it received the longest letter, oddly enough. Um, so let's pick it up and just read 18 to 29 first. 
says, To the angel in the church of Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds." Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That, That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father." I'll also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. Here's the historical context of Thyatira. Because it matters. Jesus is speaking to individual congregations. And so he tends to contextualize. What he's saying usually uh, speaks uniquely to them. So uh, it's the most difficult, they say, of the seven letters to interpret because of our limited knowledge of the city. We don't have a lot of contextual knowledge of Thyatira. It was founded, though, as a military outpost, but in John's time, AD 96 roughly, it had evolved into a town of trades and craftsmen. So in our thinking, it would be like a a blue-collar town, an industrial manufacturing hub, like a Hamilton or a a Pittsburgh or, you know, just a, a really tough, a working man's kind of a city or town. Now, in Acts chapter 16, 11 to 15, let me turn there, Acts 16... 11 to 15, it says, from Tro- this is Paul speaking, he said, from Troas, well, that's Luke writing about Paul's life, from Troas we put out to sea and we sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she had and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So um, many believe that, that Lydia was probably used as the, 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 the root, the anchor home uh, when she went back to Thyatira. Many scholars believe she was a wealthy woman. She dealt in purple cloth. That was highly expensive. That was a sign of royalty. It was a luxury. And again, was textiles in Thyatira. So she's taking her textiles. She's going there to Philippi. Looks like she had a house in Philippi and likely a house in Thyatira. So probably Paul used her home as a home base to plant this church uh, later in that city. It was a city of tightly knit trade guilds. Think of them as unions. 
So again, it was a classic industrial town, and they had these trade guilds, these unions, and you could not survive professionally in that city without being a member of one of these unions, trade guilds. But the thing was this, each union, each trade guild, um, was, was, uh, were, were tied to the patron god of the city, which was Apollos. And so you had social obligations, just like you have union dues today, you had guild dues back then. And part of those guild dues were you had to be involved in the ceremonies of worshiping Apollos, which involved a lot of sexual immorality and these sexually charged feasts and festivals. So as a Christ follower, you've got some issues in Thyatira. How do I follow Christ, work in my factory or work in my, with my trade, whether it be bronze or, or with textiles and be part of the trade guilds, which you got to be part of to survive in the city, yet still follow Jesus and still participate in the, the recommendations or the requirements of this union. It was a tough thing to do. And that's one of the reasons why John is writing to them and saying, listen, it's going to get worse. Now, what's the specific message to the church in Thyatira? Well, we begin with a description of the character of Christ. Now remember as well, as we learned a few weeks ago, that Caesar was claiming the title Son of God. And so Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, this is an apocalyptic document. It doesn't mean if you were to see Jesus in his resurrected form, his eyes are fire, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth, and his feet are bronze. These are apocalyptic, symbolic statements. Okay? Because John himself saw Jesus risen from the dead afterwards, and there was no report they had a sword for a tongue. So this is an apocalyptic document. Now, bronze could be a nod to the many craftsmen who worked with the metal in the city, or bronze was also a symbol of strength and splendor and power and stability. As your outline says, Christ is shown as one who has eyes who can, that can penetrate hearts. Christ is shown as one whose eyes can penetrate hearts and whose feet can deliver justice. So his eyes, this is the symbolism here, they penetrate hearts and his feet, they're bronze, they're solid. They're not like clay, like Daniel's visions. No, these are of bronze, okay? They can deliver justice. And then it's followed by a description of what Christ knows about the church. And following the pattern of most of the other seven churches, he begins with a word of commendation. Not com- condemnation, but commendation. So he says, here's some good stuff I see in Thyatira. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith. I know about your service. I know about your perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. So as your outline says... Jesus says they were growing and maturing in discipleship. They were both growing and maturing in discipleship. Now remember, folks, the Ephesian church was growing in deeds, but they were fading in love. You've lost your first love, he said. But this church was growing in all areas. They were growing in their deeds, and they were growing in their love as well, apparently. So this is good stuff. But then secondly... There's a word of rebuke. We pick it up in verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, whenever I I read that, I think, oh, if you're in Thyatira and you're reading this, you've gathered together in the Lord's day. Hey, we got a a prophetic word from Jesus to our church. Oh, what's, you know, it's like report card day here. Wow, what's he saying? He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith. Yes, all right. And your service and perseverance. Yes, he loves us. He likes us. And that you're now doing more than you did at first. Yes, nevertheless. Oh, here it comes. 
Now, this doesn't mean he doesn't love them. He does love them, as we'll see in the verses following. But he's saying, but I, I need to tell you the truth here, Thyatirans. I also see my eyes are, are, are blazing fire. I see what's going on beneath the surface when I pull back the veil. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. For example, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So you see, we've got the trade guilds, we've got the Apollos, the union, all that kind of stuff. And we apparently have this woman in this congregation who it looks like she's saying, oh, listen, there's a way, there's a path forward here. There's a way you can follow Christ and still be involved in Apollos worship. And, and I'm speaking on God's authority here. I, I'm a prophetess, is what she's saying. Every so often, I have a congregation or a conversation. I do also have a congregation every so often. But every so often, I have a conversation with someone who says, you know, Darren, why are churches so controlling? Why, why, why do you have to have membership? And, 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 you know, have to make people jump through hoops. And Why do you have boards and all that kind of stuff? Why can't you just be like, like the, the first century church where they just gathered together in rooms and just had house churches and was very in, were very informal? Where they get that idea, I'm not quite sure. Because you certainly, certainly don't get that from the New Testament. But they have this concept, you know, that the, the early church, the first church was just this big love-in. I'm thinking, have you never read the New Testament? Like, most of Paul's letters were about churches that were exploding and imploding and fighting. But, so I'm asked this question, but I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the word in verse 20, you tolerate. Notice that word, tolerate. Apparently, this congregation was lax and lazy in their oversight. Jesus saying, hey folks, you're tolerating things. So that implies that there's a leadership, there's an authority structure here. Now, this is the tension we manage, of course. There's two ends of this pole. There's going to be a, an absolute controlling, abusive leadership, and then there's complete lax and absence of, of leadership. Well, we're talking about the tension in that continuum somewhere. But Jesus is saying, you as leaders in Thyatira, you are tolerating something that you ought not to be tolerating. They were not exercising the proper authority or control over what was happening in their midst. So there was a level of control, of influence, of discipline that Jesus expects from his leaders in congregations. They were tolerating someone or something that they should not have been tolerating. So just a little side principle there. This is for free. It's not on your outlines. That, that God is the author of leadership structure, and he holds his leaders accountable for what they allow to happen under their care. Now, as your outline says, churches, like people, are not one-dimensional. Churches are like people. We're not one-dimensional. We can have great strengths and great weaknesses. I, you know, I've evolved over the years as a follower of Jesus. I became a Christ follower when I was 19. And you know, at, at first, I thought every Christian leader was incredibly godly and wonderful. And, and you know, they were just perfect in, on all aspects of their lives. And, and the more I've followed Christ and, and watched my own life and my own journey and the journeys of others and different leadership positions I've been in, I've realized, you know, life is just messy. And we're, we're more complex and complicated than we even acknowledge. And uh, everything, as we see in Revelation, is not as it appears. And we all live in that tension. And 
there are things about my life that I'm just so excited about that I'm growing in, and there are things about my life that I'm saying, God, really? How many times do I have to go around this circle? You know? And it's the same with churches. Jesus says, there's some great stuff. You're growing and maturing, but nevertheless, I, I see this. And so there are churches, you know, we have imperfections and strengths, and individuals, we have imperfections and strengths as well. What's with this Jezebel thing? Well, as your outline says, Jezebel was likely not her real name. I doubt any Jews in the first century would name their daughter Jezebel. Okay? And um, so, uh, but it was a reference to her nature. It was a reference to her nature. What are we talking about here? Well, the original Jezebel um, was the name of an evil queen. Sounds like a Disney movie, I know. But it was the name of an evil queen um, who was married to an evil king named Ahab. So back then, centuries ago, Israel, the nation of Israel, broke into northern and southern kingdoms. So there's the northern uh, tribes, and then there's the southern couple tribes, Judah, and what was the other one? Was it Benjamin? I can't remember. Um, in the south. And so the southern tribes had Jerusalem as their capital, and the northern tribes had Bethel as their capital. And so they had separated, and they each had their own kings and everything. Okay? And um, Ahab was the king of the northern tribe, and Jezebel was his evil queen wife. And uh, let me read a portion of uh, what 1 Kings descri describes here. 1 Kings, that's the Old Testament. 1 Kings 16, I'm starting at verse 29. 1 Kings 16, 29 says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Israel meaning the northern tribes. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal and he built in, that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, like this... this big uh, idol, essentially, made an Asherah pole uh, and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Turn right from there to 1 Kings 21, verse 25, and we hear some more. It says, uh, it says uh, this is God speaking, I am going to bring disaster on you, prophet, I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave and free. No, 21.25. I think that's not what I'm wanting. 21.25 says this. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by, his, by Jezebel, his wife. So Jezebel, she's this Baal worshiper. She's in the background pulling the strings and pushing the buttons and pulling the levers on her husband. And she's stirring it up. 2 Kings, then 9, 6 to 10. So we get this background of who Jezebel is and uh, what Jesus is communicating here, the nature of Jezebel. 2 Kings 9, 6 to 10 talks about the end of Jezebel. Jehu, the prophet, Jehu was a cutthroat. He was just this 
prophet who was bringing justice. He got up and he went into the house. Then the prophet poured out the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I'll cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I'll make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. And when you, le- you read later in, chapter, uh, in verse 30 and 37 of that same chapter, that's what happens. She dies, she falls down off, off from a... A window and the dogs eat her, her her body there, and so she was she was the woman that you know Elijah and the prophets of Baal. She was the one that he was fighting with at that time. So Jezebel was a nasty, nasty lady. Okay, and as your outline says, she that's Jezebel in Thyatira was apparently teaching that one could follow Christ and worship with the guilds. So she said, no, I found this third way, you know. It doesn't have to be either or. So she was, and she was apparently claiming divine authority and insight. So somehow she was saying, no, you, you can worship and involve yourself in some sexual immorality. Remember we learned a couple weeks ago that one of the other churches, I think it was Pergamum, looked like they were dabbling in Gnosticism, that whole idea with the Nicolaitans, and it looked like their teaching was... Uh, first century Gnosticism, where it's only your spirit that matters. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. And so, yeah, you can be involved in sexual immorality because it's not your spirit being involved. So you can do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't matter. And we don't know if Jezebel was, this woman, they're calling Jezebel, was teaching that or not. We don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say that she's uh, part of the the Nicolaitans, which Jesus has mentioned in two other churches. So it it appears that she wasn't a Gnostic per se, but somehow she was giving divine authority. She was claiming to be a prophet and claiming God's inspiration that you can actually do this, Thyatirans. And Jesus saying, you're tolerating this and you should shut her down. Okay. Then thirdly, there was a call to repentance. It says in verses 21 to 23, I have given her time to repent. Now look at this. Again, this is where, when you first read this, it talks about it's going to kill her children and everything. Whoa, what's up with this? Read this through the eyes of grace. Jesus is saying, I love her. I died for her. And I'm actually patient with her. I have not yet judged her. I don't want to judge her. Look what he says. I have given her time to repent of her immorality. But she's unwilling. So, if she remains unwilling, saying, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. So I'm going to make her suffer. Why? Because I'm trying to bring her to repentance. I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I'll strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I'll repay each of you according to your deeds. So as the outline says there, Christ has been patient with Jezebel, but she remains stubborn, so he will increase the pressure. I'm going to increase the pressure, he says, because she's remaining stubborn. Now remember, we've learned, we learned a couple weeks ago, that not every time we're undergoing trials and difficulties is it a sign of God judging us or, 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 or because of our evilness or evil ways. We've learned that already in these churches here where he said to previous churches, no, I see, I have nothing to, 
I don't need to call you to repent or anything, yet you can expect to suffer more and actually have martyrs. So we learn then, just because you're suffering is not necessarily a sign that God's punishing or judging or, or, or disciplining you. Okay? You'll know. You know, we, my wife and I raised four kids, and I never, you know, walked up to my kids just out of nowhere. Look at your Bible there. And just say, hey. <laughs> and my kids, what's that for? You know. No, no. If, when you discipline a child, effectively, they know why they're being disciplined. If they have no idea why, it's not really discipline. Never sit in that table. <laughs> You're in the spit zone and the slop zone. All right. He says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer. Notice the grace from this statement that Christ exhibits. He has been patient with her. He'll continue to be patient with her. He's bringing suffering into her life to bring her to repentance. Her greatest sin, by the way, was not the immorality, but her refusal to repent. Now, again, we, we every summer, you know, we do hear the You Asked For It series where you choose the topics that we speak on. And every year I get asked the question, and about every four years we address it, the unpardonable sin. What's the unpardonable sin? What's the unforgivable sin? And I think it's pretty clear, you know, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, Matthew 12, 25 to 32 essentially says, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Blasphemy is defiant irreverence. And to blaspheme the Spirit is to reject the work of the Spirit in your life. It's the only sin that can't be forgiven. He said, Jesus literally said, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. What about murder? Every kind of sin and slander. What about incest? Every kind of sin and slander. What about abortion? Every kind of sin and slander. What about lying? Every kind of sin and slander. What about sexual deviation? Deviance. Every kind of sin and slander. But the one sin and slander that cannot be forgiven is to reject or blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the role of the Spirit is to bring you to Christ. And so you're, 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 somebody's trying to throw you a life preserver and you're ignoring that person. You're cutting off the branch you're sitting on. You have no, you're blowing up the bridge to God. You're rejecting the hand of the one who draws you to Christ. That's the only sin that can't be forgiven because you're refusing the one who draws you to Christ. And that's what Jezebel's doing. She's, she's resisting the Spirit of God and God is working in her life trying to bring her to repentance and she is resisting, resisting, resisting. And so Jesus says, I will strike her children dead. Now what's up with that? Well, again, as you, I read several scholars on this, and the, the best, uh, it seems that the general response is this, as I put on your outline. In the spirit of the apocalyptic genre, likely referring to Christ causing Jezebel's followers to perish as a way of rooting out her teaching. So it's not so much her biological children. It's not saying, okay, I'm going to get to you by killing your kids. No, that's... You know, he doesn't kidnap people to get our attention. So it's likely her children, her, the ones who are following her, you know, her, her, her disciples, her children. Um, so again, it's an apocalyptic letter, and he's speaking in apocalyptic symbolic terms here. So he's likely saying, yes, I, I'm picking off her unrepentant followers one by one as a way of rooting out this teaching. It's what I'm going to do if, if she doesn't repent. And then fourthly, there's the reward for faithfulness. 
He says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, so those of you who aren't following Jezebel's stupidity, to you who don't hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. So it's almost like he's using air quotes. The so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I'll also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this phrase, Satan's so-called deep secrets. Likely, Jezebel was claiming that she was claiming the deep things of God. But John is pulling back the veil and revealing the true source, as your outline says there, the true source of her teaching. So, Jezebel's claiming she's this prophet. Remember, Jesus says, you know, she claims to be a prophet. So she's got these deep teachings of God. She has insights that no one else has, how God is allowing this. And he's saying, no, these are Satan's so-called deep secrets. He's pulling back the veil and saying, no, they're not the deep things of God. These are Satan's deep things, so to speak. There's, there's some irony in that statement, it appears. And then he says, I'll not impose any other burden on you. Again, this, scholars have a tough time with this Thyatiran passage here because there's some... Again, we don't have a lot of information, so it's hard to understand the context. But it appears an, an awkward way of saying that simply and purely following Christ is less burdensome, that's that next blank, is less burdensome than trying to follow Jezebel's so-called deep secrets. He says, you know, the enemy has all these deep secrets and all these feasts and all these things you have to go through and with these guilds and these ceremonies and all that. He says, no, listen, I'm not going to impose any further burden on you other than what I've already given you, okay? So just follow me, and you don't have to worry about all these hoops and, and things that you have to jump through. I'm not, I'm not imposing anything further on you, okay? Don't have to worry about that, except just hold on to what I've, I have, I have and, and what you have, what I've given you until I come. Just continue to, to follow me is what he's saying. And then he says, I'll give authority over the nations. Likely a reference to Psalm 2, 8 to 9. We don't have time to look it up this morning, but you can check that out yourself. Which, as your outline says, depicts the Messiah's authority and our part in his end time rule. We have a role in the end time rule. I mean, Paul said to the church in Corinth, where they're fighting with each other, he says, hey, what are you fighting about? Don't you know you will judge angels someday? There's an aspect of ruling that Christ followers uh, will experience in eternity. So listen, smarten up. Okay? There's authority that's going to be um, delegated to you. And then he says, the I'll give you the morning star. The morning star usually appears at the darkest point of the night. The morning star is the symbolic name for the star that appears at the darkest point of the night. And Christ is called the bright morning star later in Revelation 22, 16. So, as your outline says, this could possibly be a promise of us sharing in Christ's future glory. I'll give you the morning star. Who will rule with an iron scepter? Okay? So I'll give you the... You, you will share in his authority, his rule. And by the way, folks, notice that all of this is promised to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. So again... As we're going to see as we continue through this book, there's foreshadowing all through these letters to these seven churches. Foreshadowing of kingdoms colliding and trials and pain in the future. All right, 
let's take our last five minutes as we do each week and open it up for questions about what we've learned today, first of all. Any questions about what we've learned this morning? Yes. So the question is, how can we respond to people who say, how can your all-loving God, you know, how can it be all-loving and strike Jezebel's followers dead? Well, again, look at the context of Jezebel's followers. It appears they are people who are in the church in Thyatira. So they know about the grace of God. They know about the message of Christ. They know about truth from lies. They are, God is, His Spirit is active in their life. They are intentionally resisting and rejecting. And so he's saying this is what will ultimately happen to people who intentionally, willfully reject the truth. So that's like saying, how, how can a loving God allow people to be harmed if they jump off a building? Well, it's gravity. They know that if they jump, they're going to fall and they're going to be harmed. They know better. They're making this decision. God respects our choices. God is a true God. He's a holy God. He is loving. So he's saying, don't jump off that building. Please don't. I'm begging you, don't. In fact, I'm going to tie your legs together. I'm going to make it so it's hard for you to jump off that building. But the person's crawling to the end and finally throws himself off. And yet we say, how could a loving God allow that person to do that? Well, they are exercising their will and their intention. And God honors us. We've been made in his image. He has given us the ability to make our own choices. And we are accountable for our choices. So the context is not God just saying, I'm going to go randomly shoot people's kids. No, no. The context is, please, please don't do this. But to protect other people from following your deception and your lies, I love these other people. And you are, you are toxifying the air here. And if you refuse to repent, I love them. And so I'm going to have to separate you from them because you're, you're spoiling the life of this congregation. Yes, John. First, can I stop there for a second? Because I, I challenge your premise a bit here, John. So what he's saying for the people who are watching in Poco, um, the, the, you're saying that there's really no such thing as an unpardonable sin because the sin is occurring before you become a follower of Jesus. But becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't define what a sin is. In fact, you become a follower of Jesus because you're already experiencing sin. So you don't cross the sin line after you become a Christian. You, the sin is, sin is missing the mark. Sin is falling short of God's design. Sin is rejecting God's design. So it's something we experience uh, before we become Christ followers. It, it's, it instigates our need to be a follower of Christ. Right? Okay. I'm not sure I understand your question then, John. So I'm saying blasphemy against the Spirit is a sin... It's the unforgivable sin because you refuse for it. You don't put yourself in position to be forgiven. The role of the Spirit, according to John, is to bring us to Christ. The Spirit draws us. And so if you're, you're rejecting the one... Think of it this way. Your car's in the ditch, and the tow truck comes along, and that tow truck is Jesus. And the, the chain between the tow truck and your car is the Holy Spirit. And the person comes up and he tries to link onto your car and you refuse, you reject. No, get that chain away from my car. Well, then you can't blame the tow truck driver for your car being in the ditch. You have refused the only way out of that ditch, which is an excellent illustration on a day like today. <laughs> I'm contextualizing. You don't pay me enough for this stuff, folks. So, yes, yes. I, yeah, I wouldn't argue with that, John. Sin is sin. Now, Sin is sin. In, the sin. in one level, sin is sin. They all deserve uh, condemnation and deserve uh, separation from God. But we don't put people in prison for envy. 
Um, but envy is a seed of murder, ultimately, is what Jesus was saying. But, uh, so sin is sin, but they're not all have the same consequences and same repercussions. Other questions? Next week, we continue with the next church in Revelation, which is, what is it? Someone yell it out to me. It is Sardis. I used to live in Sardis, actually, in the Fraser Valley. So we're going to learn about the church in Sardis next week. God bless you. Thanks for being here today.